I'm glad you're here. Thanks for being with us. A few months ago, I experienced something I'd never done before. I went to one of those escape rooms. Woo! So much fun, right? So much stress. Uh, and it, I've seen them on TV, and I've never actually gone, but we were invited. We went. Uh, and the theme was this, and, and we, we were prepped. It was someone stole the Constitution. That was the theme. And, and then National Treasure with Nick Cage came to mind. And so started watching those excellent you know, pieces of film. Uh, and they are so good. Um, they're not? I enjoyed them, okay? But I think the greatest movie ever made was Hook. So <laughs> prove me wrong. But it was this... Uh, it, it, was, it, it was one of these themes, and so we're watching this. So we walk into this room, and I didn't know this place was there. It was right there in Shoreline. I didn't, had no idea it was right there. And so we walk in, and all of a sudden, we're stu- the group of us were stunned at what it all looked like. It was just this dingy office with a bunch of weird, random stuff, and we just started to try and figure it out. The guy who was our, uh, what do you call him, like a warden? He was the one that made sure that we didn't escape too soon. Um, he locked the door behind us, or behind him, uh, and he was still trying to give us the rules, but the group that we were with was already trying to figure out the dang puzzle, and it just didn't go well. There was a recording happening, and we're supposed to listen to it. We didn't, uh, but we started looking at everything. There was a coat rack, and whenever you look at this stuff, there's always something hidden in the coat rack, right? So we're looking at the coat rack, opening up all these books, and there's these weird symbols in them, and I didn't know what it was. Revolutionary War memorabilia, which made sense because someone stole the Constitution. There was a switchboard, some model boats, and we all started looking for clues. And then we all got quiet, and we split apart. And we're all in each corner of the room trying to turn wallpaper, pretty much, hoping that it'll be like a a secret passageway because we've all seen those things. And so we're trying to randomly, uh, things would randomly go together, and every once in a while, someone would pick something up and say, this is probably important, or it's not. It's just a thing. And and, and every light, every book, every nook and cranny, they were clues, and some of them weren't clues. Some of them were just distractions. Now, mind you, in this kind of situation, my gifts are useless, if you want that door broken down, I come in handy. But putting together riddles and things, I just, I, I don't care. It's fun. And I'll try and figure it out, but my brain stops. And it's like, you want that open? Brute strength. And so I was useless in this situation, but the people we were with were brilliant. There was this phone on the side of the wall, and you picked up that phone and there was a number to call, and one of our friends figured out the number. I don't know how. Uh, it was probably one of those books I didn't read. But there, there, she, we called the number, and then there was a, a specific sound that went along with it. And then another one of our friends had the spidey sense that no one knew about that can listen to tones and find it immediately on a piano. And we're all like, what? And so soon... He's listening to this going, dang, dang, and I'm like, that's amazing. And he figures out the five or six notes, and then a wall moves. Oh, right. That's what we all did. I think the decibel level got very loud. And we yelled and screamed, and it moved. And then it was another sort of stress, because we go from an office to like this cave with a whole other set of 
rules and clues and a fuse box to turn on the lights, which I have no idea how that figured out. I'm just standing there in the corner trying to figure out how to get out of the joint. But everything meant something. And in this room, everything, there was even Greek language, and I'm feeling guilty for forgetting half the Greek I had to learn, and I'm going, this, I am even more useless because I've forgotten all of this. But there had to be a way out of that room, and we had to find it in order to escape. And the man who left us in the room and locked the door gave us this challenge when he left. He said the best group to do it did in 15 minutes. And we're like, oh, this is the wrong group to say that to. We didn't get out. Uh, at 15 minute mark, we were still trying to figure out how to turn on the computer, but, uh, but we didn't make it. And so, but, we, but the whole point of us running around was to figure out what everything meant in order for us to escape this room. We had to find the clues, retrace the steps. What happened to the Constitution? We don't know. But we're trying to figure all of it out. And the sooner we do, the sooner we can get out. And the sooner we can go to dinner. And I was hungry. And so we were in a hurry. I feel a lot of the times that our, my situation in the escape room is how you and I and everybody else in this world approach our trials. You know, we're in the book of Job. We've been looking at a man who's going through a living hell and, and some of us can identify a lot with what Job goes through. Uh, and when we come to this section of Job in Job chapter 28, I think all of us can identify with this. Job and his friends have been going back and forth for 28 chapters, essentially, saying, this is what you need to do in order to get out of your trials. And he starts trying everything. We do the same thing. We're, we're, whether it's subconsciously or even overtly, we try and find a reason for our suffering in order for us to get through it quicker. I remember being told growing up that I was in the middle of those rough seasons, probably in middle school, because that was the roughest. And I remember being told that going through this time of crisis was God trying to teach me something. And the sooner I learned that lesson, the sooner my crisis would be over with. Have we ever heard that? Oh, yeah. That's so not true. Right? We're told that, and I believed it for a while, so we began, I began praying that uh, God would, be, would show me what he wanted me to learn through this time in order that I could move on with my life. And we hear this, well, you're in a situation of waiting right now, so you would learn patience. The fact that we're waiting makes me patient. Me learning more patient doesn't make the waiting go away. I don't need to prove that I'm patient in order for a waiting period to stop. Someone told me that I needed to learn once how to endure suffering, which was weird, but we went for it. How much enduring, then, do you have to endure before you can prove that you can endure? Do you see the fault in this logic that we have? Uh, we need to learn to love difficult people, which is why uh, I was surrounded at this time by difficult people. Well, how many difficult people need to be toxic in your life before you realize that, no, you don't. You don't need to learn this. There's no quick way out of our suffering. I remember it, how was it, 10, 12 years ago, there was this time, we've spoken about it before, where uh, Carrie and I were looking for answers to our lives, and someone suggested, like Job's friends, lousy comforters, right? They suggested, oh, I bet you it's a sin that's unconfessed. And I was like, oh, geez, this could take a while. 
<laughs> yeah. And so we start going through, what didn't I confess? What did I do wrong? And I start retracing my steps. I mean, oh, was it the guy on the freeway that I said I had no cash, and then I figured out that I had $5 as I was a mile away? Do I need to go back and find him three years later and figure out, like, here's the dollar that I didn't say I had? Is it th- do I have to go back that far? We do this with our trials. We think that we can speed them up. It's what humans do. It's not just me. You do it too. We go through difficult times and we want to extract meaning from them immediately so that we can move on. We retrace our steps. Uh, Was it something we ate, something we did? We contact trace our trials, right? And it doesn't work and it's exhausting. Perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you're there now. And I think one of the most valuable lessons that we can extract from from this part of Job is simply this, searching for an explanation to why you're going through the things that you're going through is futile. There's no point. You'll search yourself dry. You can't expect or ever deduce or receive any sort of rationalization that justifies what suffering you're going through. It doesn't matter how much time or energy or what you do to decipher any sort of situation, whenever you try it, you're going to end up empty. Now, this doesn't mean that we won't learn from what we go through. We will learn from what we go through, and we should learn from what we go to. Will we learn, le- will we learn lessons from going through all of the stuff I mentioned before? Absolutely. James 1.3 says that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. So you do, or we all do, learn things from going through our trials, and we should. But trying to figure out the cause is pointless. So turn in your Bibles to Job 28. I've been trying to find it in mine. Uh, If you hit Psalms, go left uh, just for a little bit and go to uh, Job 28. Job is getting to this point in this book, and this is like the interlude, right? His friends have argued against him, and now if this, let me begin, this is a poem that is written. Everything about this book is poetry. It's an epic poem, and this is the interlude. This is like the break in the action, and we start seeing what the author is wanting to take, have us to take from this story. And so Job 28, even in the title of, in my Bible, it says interlude. So it's not just something that, you know, I found out on my own. The Bible guy wrote it for me. This is the interlude. And listen to what Job, listen to what the writer says. There is a mine for silver and the place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from, any, far from other people, they dangle and sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below by fire. Lapis lazuli, and I looked what that is up. I looked up what that is this week. It's a very beautiful stone. Uh, comes from its rocks, and the dust contains nuggets of gold. And so what we see here is this chapter comes, and it's talking about trials, and Job, you did this, and his friends are going, and then it comes to this part, and it's the break in the action. And if you look at where this chapter sits in the process of it, of the whole book, Job is coming to the conclusion, or the writer wants us to come to the conclusion, that Job is going mining for answers, and so are his friends. 
They're mining their lives, thinking that they can find it, trying to find some, move every single rock and quarry and precious metal in order to figure out why Job is doing this. And it seems weird that they'd be talking about mining at a time like this. But mining in that day was one of the biggest technological advances they ever had. That's a new thing to them. To us, I honestly hadn't thought about mining since we watched a Western the other day and it had a mine shaft on it. And I was like, oh, mining, yeah. But we don't think about that. But to them, this was a big deal. It brought a sense of awe and wonder of what treasures they could find under the earth's, under the earth's stones, what they can move, what they can find, what they can make, uh, and what was hidden behind what they thought was common, like dust and rocks. And the whole practice, and we think about it, it's still fascinating. You dig a hole in the side of the hill, you scratch some rocks away, and boom, there's a diamond, right? It's fascinating what they can find under there. But in this context, what the, what the author wants us to get and see is that the mining process is something that Job and his friends have been doing. And it's something that we try and do all the time. The poem continues. No bird of prey knows that path, that hidden path. No falcon's eye had seen it. Proud beasts don't set foot on it, and no lion prowls there. So he's talking about this precious stone, this thing that they're mining for, the reason why we're doing this. They're going through the hills. They're turning up everything. Not even the birds who have the best eyesight, the falcons who can see everything from a mile away, not even the lions know where to find the reasons for our suffering. Everything is looking for this reason, and they can't find it. Lions who can walk anywhere and everywhere they wanted to go because they're the king of the jungles, right? They don't even walk there. They don't set foot in there. Verse 9, people assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all the treasures. They search for the sources of rivers and bring hidden things to light. They're looking, searching for the sources of rivers. The language that's used there is also used in Genesis 1 and 2 when it talked about Eden. So they're searching. They're even digging their way all the way back to the beginning of time to try and find out why we're here in the first place. All in all, what's being expressed here is we can mine mountains, we can find gold, lithium, whatever you want, whatever that technology allows you to find. We can search for the sources of rivers and eventually find them on a map. We can retrace our steps back to the very beginning of time. However, the wisdom that we're looking for that will tell us why we are in our crisis at this time will never, ever be found. So why do we go looking for it? We're stuck in this loop. If I can just figure out what I did wrong, you never will. If I can just figure out what I said, maybe this will be valuable. If I can just, if I can just, and we say this, right, when we're going through our times, if I just knew what foods I ate that gave me this cancer, if I just knew who I was around when I got this, if I can trace this back, but you can't. No one can. And we're exhausted. We're guilt-ridden. The joy that comes from our lives from following Jesus gets robbed away because we're examining everything that we cannot change. We cannot go back in time and make it better. We're in a crisis. And sometimes you're in a crisis and there's nothing you can do. You're just there now. 
And so we go searching for wisdom. In verse 12, Job does the same thing. He says, but where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Nor mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. So the trials that we're going through, we won't even understand why we go through them until you're dead. So is it worth trying to examine why you're going through this when you're not going to know the answer? No. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, its precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of its mention. The price of wisdom is beyond its rubies. So what do we do? We can't go searching ourselves for it. What do we end up doing? Well, we end up talking to other people about it. And I'm all for great therapy. Married a therapist. I will attend therapy again soon. I'm all for it. But what we do is we start getting these endless conversations, throwing money at problems, thinking that we can figure out why we're here. We will learn things in the trials, but we can never get back to its root cause. And so what do we end up doing with this thing, uh, what, what Job is describing? We throw all the money in the world at it, and we still can't figure out. In that section that I just read, there's four Hebrew verbs, and every one of those Hebrew verbs has a negative tone to it. We cannot find it. You cannot work. You cannot barter. You cannot trade. You cannot buy reason for what is happening. You can't dig your way to it. Nothing you can do or say will bring an answer to the widow. Yet you and I search like us in the escape room. We grasp at anything and everything to try and get another wall to move, and, and, and it might. Uh, we, try, we grasp at any kind of book to try and figure out what we're doing. We'll believe this pastor over down on that street because he says my trials come from this, or you'll believe me because I said something, and I say a lot of things, but you'll believe me because this makes more sense, and it helps you make sense of your trials. We'll believe anybody. We'll create a habit. We'll read books. We'll surround ourselves with those people. We'll look on our Instagram feeds and we'll copy what everybody else is doing in order that we can find a reason. Yet, what happens? You stay exactly in the same place you were. Nothing changes. And as harsh as it sounds, what the writer of Job is trying to get us to understand, and I hope we can understand it so we can begin to move forward, is that sometimes the best thing you can do with your trials is not figure out where they come from, but just get through them. And it's not this weird way of accepting punishment for yourself. It's, it's just realizing that you can't go back and fix it. The best way through it is simply to get through it. And here's what I mean. I, I was talking with Rebecca about this before uh, service and talked with Carrie about it last night. We grew up in California. You, some of you know this. I used to surf a lot. And the, most, the hardest part about surfing was actually getting out to the waves, Right? Because it's not just like, it's not like cheating with skiing or snowboarding where you hop on a chair and the chairlift does the hard work for you. Uh, all the skiers and snowboarders are like, eh, whatever. Or, or an escalator, which it does the climbing for you. Surfing takes work to get out into where you're supposed to be. And the worst part that happens, or this is what happened to me quite often. I'd go surfing in a place called San Onofre. Uh, in this uh, other surf break in San Onofre called Old Man's. And you didn't have to be an old man to surf there. It's just called Old Man's. And so we'd paddle out. And whenever we would get lucky and there would be a big swell, uh, Old Man's was not fun to paddle out to 
because the break would break probably about a quarter to a half mile offshore. So now you're swimming for a half mile in order to get to where you need to be. And then you have big waves coming in and trying to push you out of the water. Surfing's one of the few sports that tries to stop you from doing it. And so you keep paddling. And you can learn all these techniques, right? You can learn how to duck dive where you push your board under the water and go. Or you can learn, I have a long board. And so we learn how to turtle dive. So it's when you go upside down and the, water, the wave pushes you underneath itself and then you can flip up and start paddling again. You can learn all of these techniques. But you still have to paddle through it. You're still going to take a couple on the head. You're still going to get a wave or two. You're, you can't always go around the wave. Sometimes you'll get lucky and you'll find a channel and a current that gets you out to where you're supposed to be. Sometimes, but not every time. Sometimes just by nature of the way the ocean is and the way the waves work and the swells come in, you're going to take some and you're going to get stuck in the uh, inside, is what we called it. You're going to go through the washing machine and it's going to exhaust you. But the whole point of going through those isn't to stop and figure out, well, where did this wave come from? This wave must have come from New Zealand, I could tell by its accent. No, you can't do that. Was that bad? This wave, this, you can't figure out where that comes from. The whole point was just to get over it and get to where you need to be. This is what Job's getting at. Stop searching for the reason. Keep paddling keep swimming. You see the goal of where you want to go, go there. It's going to suck for a while. Sometimes it does, but you keep paddling. You want to get to the other side, so you keep going. You had to go through it. No shortcuts, no jet skis. In order to get through it, you needed to go through it. It's just the weirdest thing, and it stinks, but sometimes that's just where you are. The same is true with our trials. The whole point of trials is that we would grow closer, or the, the, not the point, but the reason why we go through them, or a reason why we can go through them. I'm not really making much sense here. But the goal on the other side is to find yourself closer to where God is. That this trial will refine, that this trial will bring you into a closer relationship. This is our goal. So we keep pushing. When I was surfing, the goal was to get out there. So you keep pushing. And if we want to find the wisdom that we're all so earnestly desiring, the best place we can go to it is to keep pushing and finding and drawing ourselves near to the author of wisdom. Job says it this way. The only person who understands where everyone is looking for is found in verse 23. God understands the way to it. And when it says the way to it, it's talking about the wisdom and the reasonings. God only knows the reasoning. And he, on, and he alone knows where it dwells, for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. The author of Job tells us that we can go searching, but the only person who knows any sort of wisdom is the person who invented wisdom. Our resources will only leave us in one place. We go searching for reasons, we're never going to find them. The only thing that we can do in that time or during our crisis is draw as close as we can to God because God is the only one who knows where wisdom is. And it feels trite to say, right? Oh, you're going through trials, draw nearer to God. But it's true. 
If you want to find wisdom, you can't find it on Dr. Phil. You can't find it on a podcast. You can't find it in the next book. If you want to find true wisdom, it doesn't come from your friend. True wisdom comes from God. Proverbs says it this way, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is beginning of understanding. Proverbs 2.6, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. You want to know what's happening, why it's happening? The only person who can tell you why this is happening is drawing nearer to God, and then things will make sense. Maybe. It doesn't always make sense. You and I can't understand the things that are happening around us. It's impossible, but God does. Hear this. Drawing near to God, you will find the wisdom you need for your particular situation, and it's not a way to shorten your crisis. Rather, it's a way of changing your perspective in the middle of it. Finding the point of your problems is something that you may never discover this side of heaven. But what you will discover is a God who is with you and for you in the middle of all of them. So how do you draw near to God? I have four ideas that we're going to get to. They're not going to be on the screen, so you might have to write this down if you want to know. The first way that we can draw near to God is one of the phrases that we sang today. Fix your eyes on Jesus. How do you draw near to God? Look at Christ. Go to Him. The book of Hebrews addresses this uh, small group of Christians who were going through a living hell They were being persecuted. They were being killed. They were being ostracized from their family, all because of their relationship and allegiance to God. So using this metaphor of endurance, uh, the author, she encourages them to do this. Look in Hebrews 12, if you have it, uh, 12, 1 and 2. She says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that it, it easily entangles you and run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we endure? Fix your eyes on Christ. Look at the goal. This is where you want to go. If our lives are meant to be more like Jesus, then keep your eye on Jesus. You want to get through the storm and come out better on the other side? Look at what's on the other side and try and become more and more like Jesus. Peter learned this when he decided to get out of the boat and walk on water. If he kept his eyes on Christ, he would have, he'd probably still be walking on water because that's a cool trick. But instead, he started getting distracted, looked everywhere else, and began to sink. One of the greatest mistakes that we make in the middle of our crisis is starting to draw conclusions about God and the way God works based upon our current situations. So if my life is a living hell right now, and I draw all my conclusions based upon my life as the way it is, I'm going to start to view God as someone who doesn't like me. Make sense? And then what creeps in is that it begins to influence your picture of God, and then you start to have mistrust, and then you begin to resent God. You'll start saying that God did this to me. This is all God's fault. This leads to apathy, and it drives many away from the faith. When we picture God 
When our picture of God is influenced by the tragedy in our lives, it becomes so impossible to pursue him. Why would we want to? So if you fix your eyes on Jesus, you begin to understand that the true character of God is found in Christ. You fix your eyes on Christ, and it transforms your understanding of evil. Fixing your eyes on Christ, you become increasingly drawn to the beauty that is revealed in Christ. The beauty that we see about him dying on the cross. In Jesus, we find that we are transformed by what we go through. We're transformed and changed by the misfortunes that we endure. So how do you get through it? How do you draw nearer to God? Fix your eyes on Christ. The second one, how do you draw near? Remember that God is with you. When Jesus uh, looked at his disciples in John 15, and he gives them this dire warning, it's kind of like, wow, these guys are going to feel it. He says, look, people are going to hate you. And if I'm a disciple going, what, people want to hate me? Okay, and then he doubles down and says, and they're going to try and kill you. And I could see them going, wait, this is right after Jesus told them that he's going to go die, and he basically says, tag, you're next. And he says, this is what's going to happen with you. They're going to treat you badly because you were with with me. This This is shocking when you read it because the Bible, and then you realize this, the Bible never teaches us that bad things won't happen to good people. In fact, the Bible tells you something quite opposite. The disciples were all murdered for their faith. They were all martyred. So what we can learn from this is buckle up, buttercups. It's going to get hard for us. There's going to be trials. Hard times are coming. They came for the disciples. And when hard times come, it's easy to feel alone. This is why that when Jesus tells them all of this, he goes, look, it's going to get very difficult for you. But you're not going to be alone in the middle of this. When hard times come, the easiest thing for you to do is isolate. You don't want to be around other people. You don't want to talk to other people. And so you become by yourself. And then the hard times gets worse. This is why these last two years have been so damaging for so many people. It's been a hard couple years. And yet... Many people are isolating. Now they're isolating for reasons dealing with this virus, but now they're isolating because things are difficult. I don't want to go outside. It's too hard. I want to be by myself because it's easier, and the damage is coming from both ends. Yes, there's there's a way to remedy that, but what the Scripture tells us here is that when you are going through these hard times, one, don't isolate. You need community. You need people around you. You need to know that you're not alone. But there's also the uh, divine presence with you. When Jesus tells his disciples that this is going to be hard, he says, but there's someone coming who's going to advocate for you. In John 14, he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you an advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him because he lives with you and will be, in with, be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. In other words, you're going to go through trials, fix your eyes on Christ, and then realize that you're not alone of it, with it all. Even though I may feel like you're the only one going through what you're going through, God understands this and you're not alone. 
There's this profound peace that comes from this with the Spirit's presence with you. Paul talks about it in Philippians 4. He says that the Spirit will give you a profound peace of God that transcends all understanding and will guard your hearts and your minds. What's at risk most when you go through trials, the isolation, is your hearts and your minds. You're not alone in it. The peace is the present that comes, the presence that comes from a relationship with Christ who shares in your grief, who joins in your suffering, and the Spirit guides you through a path through it. Draw near to Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Realize you're not alone. The third one, stop asking why. Because you'll never be satisfied with the answer. We're conditioned by our world to find out why suffering is happening to us. And we ask this in order that we might fix whatever's happening. But it's unanswerable. It's unknowable. The variables that cause our suffering extend way back to the beginning of time, and you'll never figure it out. Even if you could figure out the answer, oftentimes it won't fix the problem. Asking why is the wrong question to ask. Instead, you need to ask this, what? Not why, what? What can God do through this? What is God going to do through this? Jesus does exactly this. He doesn't ask why the man was born in John chapter 9. He doesn't ask why the tower fell in Luke 13. But what he does say is what? Watch what God will do through this. Watch this. Watch. Not why. What? I'm going through this. Why? Nope. What? Jesus, in his ministry, healing lepers, raising people from the dead, never asked why they were killed. Never asked why leprosy happened to this person. Never asked why the little girl stopped breathing that one day. Instead, he says, watch what God is going to do. Stop asking why and start asking what. It brings you an expectancy. It brings you this, this thing of like, this trial will eventually end, and it will I promise you, I'm not going to give you a time, but it's going to stop. Now, what is God going to do on the other side of it? Your transformation is the point, and looking for God's movement in the middle of it will get you through to the other side, and it'll draw you near. And then finally, the last thing, when you want to draw near to God, we live in hope. Hope. Hope is a scarce material in this day and age. There's not a lot of hope going around. The Bible never assures us that things will go well for us. Rather, the contrary is this. The Bible tells us over and over, and Paul assumes this in Romans, that we're going to have hardships, we're going to have distress, we're going to have persecution, famine. Paul even says nakedness, which means you're going to be without all of your possessions, not just walking around naked. Let's not do that. But he says you're going to be down and out. There's going to be peril. Paul even looks forward and says, I might be even executed. This is going to happen. And he assumes that the rulers, the government, every, all the powers, even angels, he says, are working against us. But yet in the middle of that, he says, we hope. We live in hope. He's, it's not the most encouraging scripture to read when Paul's given us all a warning of what might happen to us, but he says there's still hope to be found. Scripture offers us a peace from knowing Christ. 
the Holy Spirit enables us not to live in fear. And we get assurance that God is working in the midst of it. But the most, device, the most decisive assurance that we have is that we have something to hold on to that, noth- that will, nothing will ever take away. And frankly, we don't talk about it enough. We have a hope in heaven. Jesus died on the cross. However, when Jesus rose from the dead and that, and that resurrection that took place provides us an understanding and something to look forward to, that even though our bodies will fail, we still have hope on the other side. Paul says, I'm going through all of what I'm going through, shipwrecked, beaten down, attempted executions, ran out of town, started a riot. They tried to kill him there. And he's saying, look, if I die, I get heaven. If I live, I get to tell more people about Jesus. But my hope is in what? I get heaven. I get a communion with God. Uh, the, The things that I'm going through will go away. I get this unsurpassable joy that heaven is on the other side of it. And that promise changes everything. It changes how we view ourselves. It changes how we view the world. It changes how we view our crisis. It gives us an eternal perspective that we can hold on to and look forward to. Here's what Revelation says. He says, in, uh, John writes in, in Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, nor crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who's seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And when he said this, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We have a hope that comes from those verses, that there is going to be a time where there's no more pain, that there's going to be a time where cancer is no more. There's going to be a time where no one dies any longer. There's going to be hope, and we have that hope today. Many of you know that my dad had a disease, he had a lung disease called interstitial pulmonary fibrosis, which is a lot to say. Uh, What it was was a hardening of his lung tissues that took about six years and either was get a transplant or die. Those were the options. Uh, He did the latter. He, He died. But in that process of six years, I remember going to his office. He had a loft in in the house, and he was working, and and I would say, Dad, how are you, what are you doing? And like, what are you reading? What are you you studying? And it was like, because he'd be reading something on the computer, and and he would say, I'm just thinking about heaven as he's on oxygen. What gave him hope in the middle of all of that? Sure, he was hoping for a transplant so he can have more years here. But he knew that the possibility of getting that transplant was pretty small. But the possibility of heaven on the other side of it was certain. So how did he get through those four or five years? Heaven. Number of times. What what are you doing? He'd just be staring off into space, thinking about heaven thinking about what it's going to be like, thinking about my questions I'm going to ask Jesus because I got a lot. The scripture still doesn't make sense. Why are there dead people walking around the end of Matthew? I don't understand. I'm going to ask him. I'm going to solve this was the wine alcoholic in John chapter 2. I'm going to solve that and I'm going to ask him and I'll let you know. But this is what he would say. I'm thinking about something that's certain. Heaven is certain. 
And we have a hope because of it. We live in hope because of it. All hell will break loose. Heaven doesn't shift. Your salvation is secure. We live in hope. We don't need to focus on why. We're not alone. We focus on Christ. We don't look for an escape. None of these, none of the reasons you find will find that lever in the escape room of your trials to get you through it quicker. But in the meantime, we draw near to each other. We draw near to the hope that is certain. And we draw near to God and we fix our eyes on what he's done for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in our uncertain world where everything is up in the air, where things are constantly shifting and changing, you remain the same. Your godlike attributes never shift from anything. You are always patient, kind, loving, enduring. And so, Lord, during this time where we try and figure out why, what caused things and, and why things are the way they are, God, would, <laughs> would you give us the strength to stop that? And instead, start looking for what? Not why am I going through this, but what will you do through this? May we fix our eyes on you, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who knows where the wisdom is. We can go searching, but we'll never find it until we find you. So God, give us your wisdom. Give us your eyes. Give us your hope. draw us closer to you. Over here on the right is communion. If it's something that you'd like to do, maybe there's a prayer for you to say. There's a, something that you need to do between you and God. There's an opportunity for communion over there. When you're ready, you can go. Um, but let us draw near to the Father in the middle of our trials. And this we pray in Jesus' name.